You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM Community Radio in New Haven, Connecticut. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're digging into stories of food, radical love, and creative social justice. This is a Food Squad episode of The Table Underground. For these fun shows, I invite three fabulous people to hang out and talk about a food topic from each of our different life and food perspectives. Today, we'll be talking about strawberries. In studio, we have Rachel Sayet, who is a Mohegan food expert and is the museum and exhibits and events specialist at the Tantaquidgen Museum, operated by the Mohegan tribe. Also with us is Chef Raquel Rivera-Pablo, owner of A Pinch of Salt Catering and Culinary Education Company. And last but very much not least, we have (laughs) Farron Harvey, the Youth and School Garden Program Manager at the Green Village Initiative in Bridgeport and an emerging baker and jam maker extraordinaire. Thank you all for joining me. Thank it's up you. a tomahawk. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I'm so excited to hear what each of you has to say today. Rachel, I want to start with you because I'm excited to hear what you have to share um, about the significance and role of strawberries within the Mohegan life and, and tribe. Hello, greetings, everyone. And I'm going to talk about Mohegan, but also some broader, um, broader, broader knowledge of strawberries. Uh, they're really important, not just to Mohegans, but throughout the tribes of the Eastern Woodlands here. And we look at strawberries as very important because they're the first fruits of the season. So if you were thinking about, you know, in ancient times when you would go through the whole winter, you wouldn't have any types of fruits or vegetables that weren't dried throughout the entire season. And then all of a sudden you have these amazing, you know, red berries appear and they have all these medicinal properties, high in vitamin C, magnesium, vitamin A, all these different things. And so they would appear and I can only imagine what it would have been like back then for people to, you know, have that. And can we just say like how gorgeous they are? Like they're like these gems like to appear in the spring. They're just so gorgeous. The red fruit kind of hiding under the the leaves exactly they're beautiful so so that's part of it I mean there's a lot more to it so basically for Mohegan people strawberries have various different important meanings so we use them as the gift of love and friendship so they could be used as a courtship offering given to somebody to show your love for them something like that or even just friendship they're known as the heart berry because of the heart Mm -hmm. shape so we call them interchangeably strawberries or heart berries Mm -hmm. and one of the traditional stories that's actually a Cherokee story talks about talks about the love component a little bit. Basically, the story goes that there's a man and a woman. They get in a fight, and it was over something silly. <laughs> I'm not even sure what it was. And the guy takes off, and he goes far away, and the woman decides to follow him. So she goes off on her own little journey, and she encounters all these other berries. Part of this you can take it, you know, how you, how you like, because some of the other berries wouldn't necessarily be, be up yet, I don't think. But either way, she encounters other berries on the way. So she encounters blueberries, she encounters blackberries, and she's just like, oh, this looks nice, but meh. And then she keeps walking. So she's the blueberries, meh, blackberries, meh. <laughs> and then she finally stumbles upon a field of strawberries and she's like this is the most amazing thing ever and you know she's picking these strawberries and then she realizes that you know whatever that fight was was so silly and she wants to bring these back to her husband and share them with him mm-hmm. and so she brings them to him and, and they make up and so the story goes um and that that version of the story i believe is called the first strawberries and there's some other different strawberry stories that different tribes have, but that one kind of shows, you know, the gift of love and that type of thing. So the heartberry and all of that that goes mm-hmm. along with it. Now, the medicinal value of strawberries, you can use them for various things. They could be used as a laxative. They can be used mm-hmm. during a woman's moon time, supposed to be purifying during that time, and also during uh, pregnancy, things like that. So... They're supposed to be really good for women in general, um, especially the strawberry leaves. So, mm, like making strawberry leaf tea. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's strawberry leaf tea. The roots are—I've never tried the roots, but the roots are supposed to be really powerful, just like many herbs and plants. And actually, a lot of tribes have specific ceremonies uh, for the strawberry and for women. So there are actually some tribes, such as the Ojibwe, who have a girls coming of age ceremony related to strawberries and things mm. like that. So 
they're, they're widespread, the stories and the traditions behind them. This specific drink that we have here today is a strawberry drink that many tribes will utilize. Again, Mohegan, we're part of the Eastern Woodlands, so we're talking about, you know, not just Mohegan, Narragansett, Pequot, but also the Iroquois, the Mohawk, the Oneida, Cayuga, all of those different tribes. And all of us in the modern day, we make this strawberry drink. So it's pretty widespread. And all of us have different festivals around the strawberries. Yeah. Can you explain a little, how did you make this drink? Yes. And I'm going to pour us some while you explain. It looks delicious. Thank you. So the drink is really simple, and there's a couple different ways you can make it. I made it the more traditional way. So you can muddle strawberries. You just cut them up and muddle them. And then you could add sugar. I added maple sugar to keep it a little bit more traditional. And then you just add water, and literally that's it. That's the whole process. Really easy. And then it has the fruit floating in it still. So you have like this beautiful pink, mm. pinkish red liquid. Fruit. Yeah, Thank and it, well, let's see how I it sliced tastes. a few to put on top, um, so those would float too. Mm. It's delicious, refreshing. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like really strong strawberry taste mm-hmm. and not too sweet. I like that it's like just a little bit sweet. It doesn't have like the sharpness that sugar would have, you know, mm-hmm. like the maple is more so. Is it traditionally made with just the sap or with maple syrup? It's traditionally made, I think, just with the strawberries. I don't know how long we've been doing it with the with the maple. I mean, we might have done it sometimes. It's hard to know in ancient times. You know, probably most likely it's sweet enough back then. Back then we used, we didn't have sugar here and maple, maple yes, was our um, main sweetener. But fruit was also used as a sweetener, and it could have been used just as often as as maple in some senses, because obviously, or even more often, right? Because maple is difficult to right. to get. So, yeah. strawberries, blueberries, things like that were also just used as sweeteners for right. other dishes as well. Yeah, and I was thinking like the sap itself probably wouldn't have held very well by this time in the year. Right. right? Exactly. Yeah. And I and I've. I've thought about that a lot recently, which makes sense why we went through all the work to make it into sugar. Right. Because it holds a lot better than even the syrup, right? You know, we didn't have refrigeration. So it makes a lot of sense. I wonder if you could talk about kind of the festivals and the Thanksgivings, the Maple Moon, kind of the way that strawberries were acknowledged and honored within different indigenous communities. Definitely. So... We've done another previous podcast you guys can check out on the Table Underground about the Maple Moon. And in it, I discuss a little bit about the traditional Thanksgivings, but I'll briefly touch here. Traditionally, for many Native people, probably throughout this country, but I can really only speak for New England, we had what we would call today Thanksgivings. That wouldn't be the word. But harvest celebrations every moon cycle of some kind, where we would have singing and dancing and feasting and things like that. And... What the modern day Thanksgiving is a pro- has a problematic history that you can check out in another podcast. Mm-hmm. But so many Native people don't actually celebrate the modern Thanksgiving, and instead they might celebrate Strawberry Thanksgiving or something like that, or they might do both. It depends on the person. But the Strawberry Thanksgiving would be that you know celebration of that first fruit of the season, honor the strawberry, you know, make the drink to go with it. Um, strawberry cornbread is also another recipe that I'll be making tomorrow uh, over at Fresh New London which is a community garden and urban farm in New London, Connecticut and that recipe is actually a Narragansett recipe and what's funny about that strawberry cornbread recipe, it is also very very tasty, is that Roger Williams actually, there's there's quotes from him about how good the cornbread was (laughs) so he came over here and he really liked the cornbread and it's something that I also recently learned um, was basically the precursor to strawberry shortcake, oh, which cool. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So basically, we had the cornmeal, and then the colonists kind of evolved it into this other shortcake. So what we're actually going to do at Mohegan, speaking of the shortcake and the bread, is a strawberry festival that I'm running for the first time at Mohegan. Uh, the Tomaquag Museum also has a strawberry Thanksgiving festival, and they're in Rhode Island. They've been doing this for years and years. So their festival will be on June 22nd in Exeter, Rhode Island. And our festival is a little later just because of, you know, timing with logistics. So we're having a little later in the season. We're having it July 13th. But we'll be providing for people free strawberry shortcake and strawberry cornbread and strawberry drink. 
so people can try all of the different foods more modern more traditional and we have a narragansett caterer doing that so you know a lot of those some of those are narragansett recipes like i mentioned and with the drink many of the drink recipes are attributed to iroquois and again it's modern day it's widespread but the haudenosaunee is the other word for iroquois more traditional word for the six nations they they really take on the strawberry festival season um, and storm. They, if you look around online, you'll find a lot of different Iroquois groups yeah. having festivals and things like that. So um, I'm, I'm so excited that you're running this festival mm-hmm. at this museum because this is you've been working for the tribe for a long time. But the museum you're working at is established in honor of your family. Right. And this is a new position mm-hmm. that you have there. And you're actually getting to really actively do this food centered food sovereignty um, work within the Mohegan tribe. And I'm, I'm super excited for you. Thank you. Yes, I'm excited too. It's definitely a huge undertaking, but it'll, it'll be great. I've been doing event planning for a long time for the Mohegan tribal library where I was working before, which was much smaller scale. So it was tribal members only. This event mm-hmm. is open to the public. I do ask people that they RSVP to me, um, at rsay at mohegan And we can provide that information just because we are giving away the free food. So we want to make sure that the caterers, don't run out of food and we will actually be having also at the event we'll be having storytelling as well as a strawberry um, strawberry basket demo there are specific baskets that are made for picking strawberries mm. and a, another crafter who's a mohegan quilter which is kind of a modern tradition amongst mohegans um, we have a lady sewing society that was very important you could learn more about that at the museum she'll be doing little strawberry coasters She'll be doing that interactive mm-hmm. workshop. And so there'll be a lot going on, and there'll be a couple vendors too. So it's pretty That's exciting. Okay. And yes, it'll be the first public event we've had at the museum that I know of ever at the Tantaquidgen Museum. And we are the oldest Native American museum in the country, founded in 1931 by my great great aunt Gladys and Uncle Harold and their father, John. That's great. Well, we'll post all that info up on the cool. table underground so people can find it. But uh, I'm so excited for you, and thank you for sharing this drink. It's so delicious. Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. So in the theme of indigenous food and local food, we have uh, other Americans now who are um, who are farmers who are growing food and selling them at our farmer's markets around the state. And Raquel, I know that you do a lot of work with the farmer's markets in Bridgeport, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little what – what have you got going on with the farmers markets? So they are about to kick off uh, with the first one happening on June twenty second. Um, so there are seven farmers markets, maybe eight, uh, in Bridgeport, located at different parts of the town, uh, so that everyone has access to fresh fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really cool, and we are excited to kind of one of them. Funny enough, strawberries becomes the most exciting thing at the market come June and July. So it's one of the sought after. Um, <coughs> Uh, fruits for the season until later on when peaches come in and then there's excitement built around that but strawberries are exciting and what I do with the farmers markets I actually do some tours so I get like little kids coming to the markets and so in that um, I was sharing with Tegan earlier that uh, I was able to kind of introduce them to different farmers at the downtown Bridgeport um, farmers market and in doing so they get like these little five dollar Bridgeport bucks which the collaborative raises um, to use towards fruits and vegetables and they each bought strawberries and since there wasn't enough seating you know kids they like sat themselves right on the floor and started throwing them back it was the most cutest thing like to like capture you know um, so yeah so my work has to do with you know being at the market um, showing some cooking demos with some of the things that are there and just like being able to kind of like spread excitement about what's coming at the market each week. Can you talk mm-hmm. about, like, I love when you're talking about the kids and how excited you get, but can you talk about what is important about, these are a lot of kids of color who are from yep. Bridgeport, and they're coming into a market, most of the farmers are white, and and maybe people are used to shopping at their corner store or a small grocery store or, or a large grocery store, yep. but um, can you talk a little bit about the work you're doing to help make the markets both feel, feel like inviting spaces for people from the Bridgeport community, for folks of color, and also kind of what you're doing to try to help 
change the face of the market so that the community is more represented in the vendors. So first it comes with, and that was awesome, but like, um, you know, thinking about what separates a farmer's market versus a supermarket. So there's some education built around that, right? Why should I support my farmer's market? Especially when people are saying, well, it doesn't really seem like a place that I, you know, go. I go to my Spanish bodega down the corner and I can pick up what I need. And it's kind of just... um, it's a place that's inviting, and we work really hard, we as a collaborative and those who sit at the table, um, trying to really think about what it is that we want from these markets. So we're thinking about, you know, is the information that we're providing in different languages, you know, so that anyone feels like they can get that information? Are we making sure that we are, um, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you're eating healthy, that means, you know, it's spending a lot of money, right? That whole whole paycheck type of feel when you think of things. Um, but really making it accessible to everyone through Bridgeport Bucks, through accepting SNAP, through WIC checks, through senior vouchers, you know, things that are going to allow the community as a whole to take part of it, whether they're spending cash, debit, credit, or any other type of benefit at the market. And that's really something that even though that seems simple enough, it's very challenging because we also have to think about how are we doing it in a way that doesn't make that person coming into the market utilizing any of this uh, feel uncomfortable or unsafe you know what I'm saying like we want it to be an inviting space and then there's other things like okay if a mother's coming in with children and wants to shop that becomes a very as a mom it's very um, challenging in itself you know how do I hold the bags watch right, my no child cart to like stick your kid yeah. in while you walk the yeah it's very yeah. free but there's activities that are being done there's face painting at some of the markets there's demos that are being done at the markets there's hula hooping there's Uh, a library truck that appears at some of the markets so these are and even free lunch that's being distributed so there's a lot of other things that can help ease some of that you know some some frustration that might come with trying to balance and juggle money and groceries and children that naturally happens and make that a little easier and then in terms of you know who are the people who I'm purchasing from and that's what makes it really exciting is like you get to actually see a person behind the fruits and vegetables, yeah. you know, and sometimes, I mean, we're all, you know, when I, when we were thinking about what are some of the challenges of the farmer's market, you know, some people said, you know, if the vendor doesn't look like me or sound like me or come from where I come from, it becomes very almost discouraging in a sense to shop here, right? You, there's a sense of, we all like that feeling of belonging, you know, and so that's been a challenge in terms of like, well, so how do we make it that way? And we can't change some of our farmers. I mean, we love our farmers and we'll take them whatever color and whatever they, you know, whatever background they are. But it's about allowing uh, open communication so that the, the vendor and the customer is able to communicate in such a way where we see past some of that in some way where we can say, OK, well, I have all this excess corn you know like I'm buying corn what do I do with it before it goes bad you know so like there's some communication that's being had there that kind of takes away some of that uh you know you're different than I because food has a way of like uniting people in a Mm -hmm. in a way that's very special um but do you mean that you're seeing people having those conversations at the stalls and so they're engaging with each other you know like you know I know at Reservoir Community Farm when someone comes up and says what is this that we're growing here Mm -hmm. what is this and that automatically becomes a part of the you know, let's explain this a little deeper. You know, right. let's talk about this. And all of a sudden, whatever color or whatever the background is, it just disappears because now there's an interest in what is actually happening here. Yeah. So there's that and making sure that that feels like a safe environment in, in terms of that. But then there's also about, well, okay, the truth of the matter is is that we want to diversify our markets. You know, we want to see... Uh, different type of cultures coming to the market, not only coming, but also being on the other end of being vendors and selling stuff that is true to certain cultures and backgrounds. I know for myself, when I walked around certain markets, I'm thinking to myself, I probably am the only Hispanic here, you know, like in thinking about what does that mean? Um, and if I can have that, there's other others of us who can feel that same discomfort. So what's pretty cool is that I've had the opportunity to work with like-minded um, food entrepreneurs who are thinking about, I want to start a product. I want to sell something. I want to start my business and actually work with them one-on-one in a way that's pretty special and now have this farmer's market platform where they can now come in and start becoming vendors. So it's kind of like 
I mean, just just to tell people Uh a little concretely, like you have a stand at the market, like a tent, right? That's your pinch of salt tent. Mm -hmm. And then you're coaching other food entrepreneurs. And are you letting them sell in your yeah under are, your tent right yep. so that they you get to kind of bypass some of the logistical things of getting into the market mm-hmm. and yeah. just support them right. yeah can you give us an example like we've heard the story of Dave's angry sauce but you want to give us another <laughs> example I, IKEA is an example so IKEA is someone who was always into like promoting parties and stuff like that and her dream is to do like a lounge and a dance type of uh, environment where people after they party can come up to her place to like eat and lounge <laughs> um, and so she. She makes, oh my God, like the best chicken and waffles. Really, really yummy. And she made these red velvet waffles and fried um, chicken. Oh dear. (laughs) And even though you don't see those as being true to farmer's market, it was really exciting to allow her to bring something as long as we knew where the product was coming from and how you know what I'm saying there was a it was great to kind of like have her come to market set up her her section um, and sell. And then the community adored her. You know, they're coming. They're, they're what it is is that because they're under my tent, I was I've been lucky enough where people recognize a pinch of salt a certain way. So it's nice to kind of like say, yeah, I'm making salads here at the downtown farmers market, but IKEA is making chicken and waffles. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it's like, tell me about this about it, you know? And to see her blossom. When I first met IKEA, she was very quiet in her sense, you know, because you're, you're guarded mm-hmm. is probably, I, you know, more of a better word. And to see her kind of lose some of that skin and be able to talk about what it is that she prepared and why mm-hmm. and give a little story and background and really just present herself is like awesome. Yes. So, I mean, like, so they all have their own story. They all have their own, what am I bringing to market? What makes this special? But what's nice is not only on the entrepreneur side, you know, providing that opportunity for a small business, but it's providing the whole community as a whole to see people like them who are in the community providing delicious food and saying, come support us. This is your market, you know, and I don't think no matter what supermarket you go to, you'll never receive that same, I don't know, feeling of belonging the same exact way. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that you're so talented with is, um, just cooking. You you cook delicious food, beautiful food, and I know you do a lot of sourcing yourself for your catering company from from the farmers market. And I'm wondering if you could share a recipe, maybe something savory that you love. Uh, I think we had talked about something with a salad. What yes. what did you have that you wanted to share? So yeah, I um at downtown McLevy uh, farmers market, I do salads, and I obviously highlight some of the. Um, ingredients that are coming directly from the farmers who brought in the food that day. Um, But so I was thinking salad dressing. And salad dressing is funny because like, you know, some of us, we're like, you know, we buy a a dressing, it can cost you anywhere from $2 to $6, depending on what dressing you you are buying. It lasts for some time, then you kind of forget about it. And it's nice to kind of think about, I can do this, it takes three seconds, Mm -hmm. I can make a salad dressing. So traditionally, when you're making salad dressing, I think it can be very complicated. You can measure everything, you can put everything out, you can drizzle it in and whisk a certain way to kind of make sure it emulsifies. But in regular life, it's nice to know we can put everything in a blender, give it a whirl, and have salad dressing. So, or, or even, I just put mine in a jar and put and, a top on and shake it up. And that I'm is like, so I don't want to have sexy. to wash a blender. Yeah, I know. You told me this was your sexy vinaigrette. So I was like, <laughs> I was like let's hear it. And I'm Go totally for, for a whole mason jar. But this one has the strawberries. And because oh, yeah. of that, I'm thinking about unless you were going to mull them and kind of do it. But yeah, I'm thinking mustard. Cause, and, and it's funny because I do it with the kids. And they're like, ew, mustard. I don't like mustard. And the funny thing is mustard, it just emulsifies the dressing. So mm-hmm. a little bit of mustard goes in. What's a little bit, I get asked. Uh, anywhere from a teaspoon, to, I think even the size of a quarter. It's mm-hmm. not going to hurt. We can always play with this. So add that in <laughs> into your your thing i like apple cider mm-hmm. vinegar so especially when you're thinking about like i think of what's that brags you know mm-hmm. when you're thinking about really you know making it really healthy for you and the benefits that come with that a splash of that and when we're thinking about what's the ratio a splash doesn't help everyone it's always one part acid two parts oil so if you kind of get that kind of in your mind then any dressing is open for grabs you know so Anyway, a splash of apple cider vinegar, and in this case, we're going to add like a pint of strawberries, and they could be sexy strawberries like what you brought today. <laughs> um, and they're real like small and red and luscious. 
But even if you had, you know, some frozen ones that you either froze after the season, you know, after buying a bunch of them and freezing them yourself, or frozen berries, you know, and, and take them out and just throw them in as well, it works. And you give it a whirl. So basically the strawberries is going to be acting as the olive oil because we're not going to dull it down with that. So it will be, I'll still do that one part, two parts thing and play with it. And if you have to sweeten it, like this beverage that we're drinking now, it's not overly sweetened. But if you want it a little bit sweeter, a little bit of honey, a little bit of agave, you can definitely play with your dressing. Um, but give it a whirl, salt it with salt and pepper. And add it to your salad. Sounds delicious. And so there's no oil in it. No, you don't have to put the, it, the strawberries kind of balance out the vinegar. Yes, and there's some thickness. You don't and not necessarily going to strain anything out if you don't need you know need mm. to. So there's some body mm. in there, and mm. it's light. It sounds know? delicious. Mm. So that's that. Mm-hmm. Yum. Yummy, now I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I want to let people know we're listening. You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM in New Haven, Connecticut. This is the Table Underground and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. And today we are doing a Food Squad show and we're talking about strawberries. Mm. All right. Baron. So you also live in Bridgeport, mm-hmm. and one part of your life also revolves around a urban farm garden. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could start by telling us a little what your how did you get into this, and and uh, tell me about the importance of the work that you do in the in the garden. And then, then we'll move into your recipe after that. Oh, okay. Um, so how did I get into gardening? Um, so I like to tell people I'm a baby farmer. <laughs> I, um, but I really got into the work around farming and um, really connecting to the land um, through uh, my personal story. And for me, often the personal is political. Um, mm. And those things like are very interchangeable. But for me, um, at 19, I went into the doctors and long story short, they were like, well, you know, you're kind of what did you eat today? And they went through all of it and they ran, started running tests. And I was like, well, what's going on? Because you're, you're asking me these questions and you're kind of giving me a like weird look. And they're like, well, you know, right now your sugar level is pretty high. Um you, it looked like you might be um, pre-diabetic. And I was like, what? Diabetes? My grandmothers have that. Why would I have that? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. And they're like, well, what do you eat? And I was like, whatever my family cooks or whatever I cook. Um, and so they were like, well, you need to change how you eat. And if you don't, you're going to have diabetes within the next year or two. And I was just like, oh, okay. And so... Um, I was just so taken back and confused by that because everyone in my family looks like me. So I'm seeing my size and there's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, fat phobia and diet culture all will have us believe that larger bodies are bad bodies. So I'm just like, but I'm sitting here grappling like, well, what does this mean that I might have type 2 diabetes um, in the next few years if I don't change my eating habit? And so through this, I started to like change my eating habits um, and really look more into... Um, just like black culture and our food and what does it mean and looking at diabetes. And as I started to look into this, I was realizing, oh, like this is not just a Farron issue. This is like, this is a thing in my community. Like black people are dying every 12 hours because of a non-communable disease such as Mm -hmm. diabetes, high blood pressure, Mm -hmm. cancer, all of these things, Mm -hmm. right? Even though like um, the police is killing us every 28 hours, like, our food is killing us every 12 hours. And so mm-hmm. it was just a moment of like, that's weird. Why is that that like my people, we have the shortest among um, indigenous folks within communities of color, period. Like we have a shorter um, life expectancy mm-hmm. than white people. But um, like indigenous folks and black folks are like the top two, then comes like Latinx folks. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, mm, why are my people like, why are we at the, why are we at the bottom of this? What's going on? And then it was like a moment of realization, oh, this is systemic. We actually don't have grocery stores. Actually, I started to change my eating habits and my grocery bill is now going up. Um, oh, actually, like in order for me to get into these spaces, um, it, it, it just requires a lot of maneuvering and just thinking about how like a lot of people in my community don't have that resource. And so, um, yeah, I just got into this work because I really wanted to see where my food came from. I really wanted to reconnect. I wanted to shift that paradigm a bit um, in my personal life. And so um, as I kept digging deeper into this, 
it was this like awkward thing that kept coming up, which was around um, like getting back connected to the land and like it was like, okay, you're eating healthier now, air quote, whatever that means. That does not mean cow and just like sunflower <laughs> seeds or like some butter and right. apples as right. like, yeah, um, you know, right. people would like us to believe. But as I was like eating better for my body and really exploring um, blackness and the context of culture and like history, um, it, it was just like a light bulb went off in that moment of realizing like, oh my gosh, there's a disconnection between me and the land. And that's so tragic because as black people, um, and I say that to say, uh, again, acknowledging the indigenous folks and like this being, right, indigenous folks land that we're on and also the complexities of like, right, um, my people being bought here um, against their will and being bought here because we knew how to cultivate the land, right? Like white people would die if it wasn't for black people. Mm -hmm. And um, like we being the people who are the agricultures, um, the scientists, and we knew how to grow food and all of these things. And so it was this realization that there was this huge disconnect from, and also like this idea of connecting with the land and thinking about slavery. And so it was this whole, it was this whole unearthing. And as I started to like, oh, well, I wonder what would it be like to go to a garden or to see what it would involve. It was this kind of reconnection that was uncomfortable and I couldn't name it. And it was for a while feeling like I was being teleported back into my ancestors' pain around like being forced to like work the land. And like, um, I think Leah Penniman talked about that a bit, about how often um, black folks specifically conflate the abuse that we had to go through um, during slavery and cultiv like, and you know, growing food. Um, with the land and not realizing that was the colonizer that was like white people right um and, and that you can you can like develop this other relationship with the land that isn't about oppression and that and that isn't about abuse and so for me i got into farming because i wanted to shift that um one of the things that keep coming up for me even in my therapy session is like the idea of healing touch and what does mm -hmm. it means to be able to like start having touch that's healing and not like trauma informed and thinking about sending that touch back to my ancestors. Mm -hmm. And so in the same work, this is what, what food is for me. How can I eat food and grow food and feed um, my people that's like rooted in love and healing and experiencing that in my body and knowing that that would free up my ancestors and allow them to feel the freedom of being able to actually connect with the land in a way that isn't like rooted in abuse. Mm. And so for thank me, you. that's mm -hmm. how I got into that work. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And can you, like, does that, the way that you're manifesting that healing and love in the work that you do, can you share, like, what do you observe about how that affects the community that you're working in? Can you also tell us if, if that happened around strawberries, since we're here to talk about <laughs> yes. strawberries? Yes. And I know that you told me you grow strawberries on your farm, mm -hmm. so like. Yes, so I would just like to say like I am unapologetically black, and so a lot of the work that I do in Envision is really rooted in like uplifting and being in community and like the idea of collective liberation. And so mm -hmm. I say that to say when I think about the, so I work at um, this organization in Bridgeport called Green Village Initiative and we have a community farm and we often have field trips on this community farm. And one of the things, which means, right, um, it's predominantly black and brown students. Mm -hmm. um, and so what's really cool, depending on when they come, um, strawberry time, they get to try strawberries for the first time. And the reason why I was like wiggling in my seat is because um, it's really beautiful to see um, the connection of a, like the connection that the child experiences when they're like, wait, we could grow strawberries here? Um, and it's like, yes. And then not only them eating the strawberry, but the experience that they get for the first time, like picking a strawberry, tasting it and it being warm and slightly sweet, slightly bitter. And that experience being different from the strawberries that they might um, have at home. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I, I really like light up and think about this work because I think the work that I'm doing allows for my community to start having this remembering that we always knew how to cultivate the land. We always had a relationship with the land and seeing like young folks get so excited 
about trying strawberries, um, a fresh strawberry for the first time. And them like, well, can I plant strawberries at home? Mm. Um, is often the question that they ask. Uh, and like really realizing like what it means to make things accessible, right? Like if it's there, if kids are like familiar with it, if they learn about it, they will eat it. They will like develop a relationship with it. And so for me, I think, yeah, I just, I think about that a lot in the work that I carry. Mm-hmm. And, and also, I really also like to talk about just, just the brilliance of black people because I think the other thing is when we dub thing as like, oh, that's white people or only white people do that. Um, there's this history that we erase. And thinking about strawberries, I like the fact that, like, um, Rachel had brought up, you know, the strawberry drink in, like, her indigenous community. Um, because for black people, we didn't have, like, maple syrup or all of these things. Think about, like, black history and black culture. A lot of the things that we have um, were, A, considered healthy, but also it was um, using the scraps or, like, things that were going bad. And so when we think about, like, all of these hipsters and like their mason jars now and mm-hmm. like these reusable or like trying to reduce waste like black people have historically done that i grew up drinking mason jars out of my grandmother's house not because it was cool but she's this older black woman from the south and that's what you did um you preserved a lot of your food and so strawberries um i often think about like how we would just like make uh, a syrup out of them whatever fruit we w- we had we would just make a syrup you would just cook the strawberries down because they were about to go bad. You'll put some sugar, some lemon juice. And if you want, depending on how thick or not you want it, you'll add some water. And that could be like a a simple syrup for your drink drinks. And then, (laughs) right, like if you wanted to make more of a compote so you could put it on your waffle or in your yogurt Mm -hmm. or whatever it is that you wanted to put it in. Like, that's what we've been doing historically. Yeah. And it's so important because, like, people think of, like, old old world American food, right? And it's this real association with, like, white colonial folks. And there's Mm -hmm. this real erasure of Mm -hmm. the black folks who were the ones who were bringing cooking traditions, often cooking the food, and we don't in this country attribute a lot of those foods and techniques and skills and wisdom to black folks. And so I, I, I super appreciate you talking about that. Um, and I wanna ask you, uh, y- you've started making jams, right? Yes. So tell us about that. Find your girl on Insta or Facebook, I'm selling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's actually through Chef Raquel, like support and um, having me like, and connecting me to like doing a safe serve um, and doing all of that work. But yes, I create jam, I mean, I make jam. Um, so I go to local farms here um, and I make all types of jams, but right now currently strawberries and I have some like um, mixed berries from last year that I'm also gonna be using. It's interesting. I don't have a quite a uh, um, recipe that I could say I use this and this. Um, I learned from my grandmother, and what she did is you just like taste it until it tastes right. Mm. Um, but I would say that I usually use like um, I would say for like every pound of fruit, I usually use the recipes that I co- like. I found they're like use uh, a, a cup and a half. That's way too sweet of sugar. Yeah. yeah. So what I use is um, anywhere from three-fourths to one cup um, of sugar. And even then, some people might say that still is too sweet, depending where you are Mm. with, like, sugar being in your body. Yeah. One of the things I've been trying to do also, because when you look at jam recipes, it'll be, like, four pounds of sugar to, you know, like, however many pounds. I'm like, that is total insanity. And we're talking about diabetes, too, and trying to eat healthy. Some of the things I try to do sometimes is... um, is take apples. Now, they're not in season quite at the same time, right? But we can get apples Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) and apples have a lot of natural pectin and so sometimes what I do is use a grater and just grate them and so they disintegrate Mm -hmm. a little as they're boiling you get the pectin you get the sweetness and so that I can use a lot less um, sugar in the recipe because the apple is sweetening and the the apple gets all red and kind of you know, it just absorbs mm-hmm. the strawberry mm-hmm. or berry juice, so it's just kind of pulpy in there. Um, and different apples have, you know, some of them get mushy, some of them mm-hmm. hold their shape so you can choose what kind you want. And are you using pectin in your recipe, or how I are you not. thickening it? I use um, the fruit, sugar, and lemon juice. Mm. Those are my, um, that's, that's it. Yeah. And for me, it's just the cooking time. You have to stand over it mm. and, like, keep stirring constantly. Yeah. 
one of the things so I had made jam that way too and then one of the things about that is that you cook it down so much mm-hmm. so it, it ends up being more expensive right because or you get less because you're cooking the fruit down like the liquid down so the apple can help bulk it up a little but you still have the flavor and then a bunch of years ago I um found this recipe online where they used green strawberries for mm. pectin because like green fruit has natural pectin in it Ooh. and um the seeds and the pith the white part of the lemon also have pectin so i would wrap that in a piece of cheesecloth and throw it in the fruit while it's boiling mm. and then the pectin goes in so it doesn't get like thick and hard like you know but i don't like my jam like that mm. i like it kind of yeah. runny mm-hmm. and delicious and mm. Sexy, just mm. like your vinaigrette. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> food is supposed to be sexy. That's what a chef yeah. always taught me. He said, make it right. sexy. The That's chef it. I used to work for. Mm. I actually wanted to touch on quickly just some of the things you were talking about. I don't know how much time we have left, but I'll be quick. Go for it. Um, <laughs> there's too much overlap, so we won't go into too much. <laughs> but I just want to mention that um, Farron and I are both part of the Food Justice People of Color group, um, which I guess is based in technically Hartford or New Haven mm-hmm. um, through CT Core. And so it's just it's just good to hear all your perspectives because it just reinforces Definitely. the reason why you know we're in the group and we mm-hmm. can both you know share our backgrounds and our perspectives. I don't want to get emotional, but it's definitely. You know, the stuff you were talking about was definitely very emotional for me, too. And I really appreciated hearing your stories um, because I think, you know, they're so different, but there's so much overlap between, you know, the health issues in our communities and just trying to bring back those traditional foods and growing and things like that, planting. I know for me, the Native Food Discussion Group that I've been running at Mohegan for the past few years, it's even just little things like many tribal members have never tried a fiddlehead thing similar to you know have you know whether or not they're growing something or not they just never tried a lot of the indigenous foods so it just makes me happy when people come to me and say oh now i tried this or you know now i tried the strawberry drink something that we traditionally would have had but you know people think so much about you know all of the native foods of this country being native foods and even you know the african-american foods all of it kind of just being moshed into this like american yankee cuisine they don't think about like the background behind it Mm -hmm. so that is really important that's why i always emphasize like okay what's the roots of the food right we need to look at that too and then also just bringing that back to our communities so i think that's all very important and i wanted to mention also that i um, am doing a master preservation canning workshop the end of June on the Seneca Reservation. So I've never made jam before, but it will be all about, I don't know if there's traditional methods, if it's modern, but it's going to be making jams. I'm assuming some jerkies. So stay tuned. So maybe we can, you know, interchange. I'm really excited. You know, it's it's like a seven, eight hour drive to the Seneca Res past Buffalo. And it should be really interesting. They have a big farm out there. So I'm assuming whatever methods they they use are probably, you know, maybe a mix. So Ooh, it should be really interesting yes. to learn. So maybe some of these techniques will pop up. Who knows, right? Sounds great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sounds great. thank you for sharing that. Did you want to share anything else or you? Yeah, no, I think I'm good. I'm just really excited to be here. And I just want to say thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. I, I love hearing all these, all of these different stories and also the interconnectedness piece mm-hmm. of them. Um, so I wanted to share just a couple quick things. First of all, I brought us some strawberries from my garden. I Yay. have a little backyard <laughs> garden in the city of New Haven. And um, I, the past couple of years, I haven't oh, had nice. strawberries. But th- I, last year, I put them back in. And they're growing. And they're turning and they're beautiful. red. beautiful. Yeah. yeah. They're, you know, one thing I notice is when it's um, really rainy, that they're more watery. So they're not, like, as sweet. But mm. I'm going to pass them around. Mm. Everybody take one. We can have a little friendship. <laughs> Strawberry. <laughs> friendship and further, love. Further bond <laughs> us. <laughs> um, and, you know, one of the things that I think a lot about strawberries is um, being aware of who's picking our food. Mm-hmm. And strawberries, in part- berries in particular, are something that um, a lot of them are being grown in Mexico and being grown in California, either mm-hmm. with migrant farm workers in California or with Mexican and, and other Latin American uh, workers in in Mexico and being bought by large agricultural giants like Driscoll's and, and mm-hmm. other companies. And a couple years ago, the, the workers um, in the San Quentin Valley started a boycott around um, Driscoll's uh, mm-hmm. fruit, which sometimes their fruit is sold under other names. But you'll, if you see, if you don't know the name and you see the sticker, you'll realize like most of the strawberries that you see around are sold by that company. 
folks, I think, who were in Mexico were making $7 a day for 12-hour shifts and often didn't have water, didn't have places to go to the bathroom. And really, this is like, this is slave labor. This mm-hmm. is like horrible abuse mm-hmm. of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of part of the problem with grocery stores versus farmer's markets is that we don't see who's, I mean, actually, farmer's markets, we still don't necessarily mm. see who's picking our food. And there still can be exploitation that's happening on farms. Although often with the smaller farms, it's not as bad as with the multinational ones. So... Um, it's something that I'm just like super aware of when I'm buying food and, mm-hmm. and that struggle that we have of like trying to have food be available all year round versus just when it's in season and kind of the the desire for companies to just make as much money as possible versus having food that where the people who are growing it are being treated as humans and being mm-hmm. allowed to live good lives. So that mm-hmm. that is something that um, strawberries for me just in particular bring that up. And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. at the same time, they make my heart go crazy because when I see them <laughs> in the ground, like as I said, when I see, when I go to pick them in my backyard and it just looks like this sea of green in the garden bed and then you like look under, you know, you lift up the leaves and then there's this mass of berries mm-hmm. there. And so I have this complex, I think as a lot of us have shared this complex, like total joy in this thing and awareness of like the struggle and pain in something. And so uh, mm-hmm. When I thought about strawberries, mm. that's that's what I thought of. So, and do you I, think I know that they say that the you know the non-organic strawberries are some of the most problematic. You know, a lot of, of pesticides, pesticides and stuff yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think? I don't know if you know anything more about. Yeah, that. I mean, there's like a dirty dozen list and the clean fifteen, which is a list put out by the environmental working group that just lets people know which foods, which produce, kind of holds more pesticides, so that you're more likely to be putting them in your body when you eat them and which ones tend to be sprayed less or have less and so strawberries and berries tend to be at the top of that list because they're super delicate fruits Mm -hmm. right and Mm so um and i think they part of the reason the labor is more the people the the humans who are growing it are more uh, exploited is because they don't last very long right and they're really fragile so they have to be picked really quick and they have to get to market and get sold and so they need more people and they need to kind of turn things over more quickly um Mm -hmm. so it's a tricky thing and i just want to you know add i I don't i think we're indirectly talking about it is the seasonality of things Mm -hmm. i lived overseas for two and a half years and in fiji islands uh and one of the things that i really grown to appreciate was the seasonality at first it was really hard because i was used to if I wanted a mango in the wintertime, I was I was able to get a mango. <laughs> if I wanted an avocado, I was able to get an avocado. In Fiji, that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. It is mango season. Therefore, mm-hmm. for the next three months, you better eat these mangoes. <laughs> it's gone. It is gone. Now, Fiji, they don't have strawberries. Mm-hmm. But I said that to say is something that I think we're missing um, mm-hmm. when we think, you know, and I don't want to make it religious, but when we think about the seasons and how things were created um, and whatever we believe in, Right. Like we are I think we're really supposed to eat in season. And uh, and like I think when we do that, we will appreciate and actually taste the sweetness because, you know, as I get older, I can't eat straw. I can't eat strawberries when they're not in season. I can't eat tomatoes when they're not in season. And there mm. there's a beauty in that because you taste the difference. Mm-hmm. Just pulling this out because um, the strawberries like. They, so you're holding they, up your they, phone. They, my case is up. Uh, my, my phone case <laughs> is by a native artist named Christy Belcourt. She's First Nations Canada, but she does this music, amazing paintings that look like beadwork. And basically, strawberries are just always looked at as medicines and kind of looped in with flowers mm-hmm. and herbs. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because it is that first fruit of that season mm-hmm. and it is have that medicinal value. So it's like so important, that timeliness of the strawberry. Mm-hmm. I just think that's so cool how she kind of just... Yeah, utilizes it in that way you yeah. know just mm-hmm. make sure people realize okay it's not just a fruit right it's something that's beneficial to us but also just eating everything seasonally i mean indigenous people didn't have an option right we didn't have an option and same thing with you know throughout the throughout the world not just in this country we all ate things seasonally for hundreds and hundreds of years and we had to but it was also better for us mm-hmm. right? right and then now we kind of have to revitalize that practice mm-hmm. But, you know, some some people do it more than others and we're doing the best we can. But yeah. it's definitely, you know, it's definitely important. And I feel like 
the strawberry just I don't know it's just one of those things that just brings it all together yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely so I wanted to share like uh, two of the things for for strawberries I love is going and picking strawberries so I got like a tiny bed in my yard it's like three feet by five feet I can get a handful of strawberries each morning for like a few weeks and that's about it but I there's a website called pickyourown.org and mm-hmm. you can look at the entire country mm-hmm. and I think other countries as well and look up they list farms they list what their growing practices are like if they're spraying mm-hmm. and it's not just mm-hmm. if they're certified organic they'll also say that they use like better environmental practices less spraying even if they're not certified so you can really get a lot of information and then I always call the farms directly or go mm-hmm. on Facebook now more farms are starting to use Facebook to give like more daily updates but I love going to pick strawberries mm-hmm. and I pick like whole like 20 30 pounds at once and then I bring them home and I chop them up and freeze them on cookie sheets and then once they're frozen put them in a bag because if you just throw them in a bag they'll be like a big block Mm -hmm. right so if you freeze them on cookie sheets um and it can be a little intense to be I'm gonna go spend $30 on strawberries but if you think about over the summer over the spring and summer how many times you bought like a three dollar quart or Mm -hmm. or more Mm -hmm. at a farmer's market or at a grocery store um and you think like you're buying that all at once and you're going to spread it out, then that's great. So um, I'll put that up on my website. And the awesome. other thing is I have been making a lot of homemade yogurt. Um, and I actually learned this this trick from Soulfire Farm because I used to try to make yogurt at home and it would just be like soupy milk. You know, mm-hmm. like people say, oh, you, you heat the milk and you put a little yogurt in and put it in the oven where it'll stay warm. Well, once upon a time when ovens had um, pilot lights, they were warm, but it, my mm. oven is not really warm like that. Mm-hmm. So I put it in a cooler with some jars of boiling water. And so it's, you know, it's in jars. Mm-hmm. You heat the milk. You, when, when it's not too hot, you mix in a, a few spoons of yogurt and put it in jars. And then I put it in a cooler with some other jars of hot water and a towel. And that keeps it real nice and warm in the cooler. Mm. And then I end up with yogurt. So one of my favorite things is strawberries and yogurt. Mm. So I will put that oh. recipe up on the table mm. underground because it's, you can make that yogurt sexy. that's way cheaper. It's so sexy. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, yeah. uh, seriously, like this jar of, of yogurt, you open it, you scoop a, a beautiful scoop of, of luscious yogurt. So it's so much cheaper. I can make buy grass-fed milk and make a quart of, of like pasture-raised cow milk yogurt for three dollars mm. or or two fifty if you tried to buy that in the store it'd be like six dollars or more right mm-hmm. so uh it's a lot cheaper it's really easy to make once you do it once you're like this is a piece of cake i can do it anytime so. sweet mm. yeah well i'm just gonna mention one more thing if possible um at the museum we also have a lot of baskets with strawberry designs mm. because of the importance of strawberries oh wow so Feel free to check that out anytime. But yeah, just because they do have that medicinal value and everything, there's just they're they're everywhere. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you all so much Thank for joining you. me. Thank you for having me. So try that yogurt. Yeah. Oh, and try everything. This is delicious. Happy strawberry. Yes. Happy strawberry. Thank you. Strawberry move. Yes. To get more info, photos, and links about this episode, go to thetableunderground.com. You can also find past shows, articles, and recipes there. Check us out on all the social medias, and please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts to help others find us. I'm Tegan Engel, and this is The Table Underground. 